you're being seated, would you turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Zephaniah? It's one of the minor prophets there towards the end of the Old Testament. Go to Matthew, hang a left, a couple pages, you'll find it. We've been preaching through this minor prophet for the last number of weeks, and I was actually planning to finish it uh, today, but I, I left so much out last time that we're, we're not we're not going to do that. Uh, there was actually a whole point I had left off, and so I'm like, you know what, I i got to do justice to this book. So we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And where we're going is this week we're going to look at some of the attributes of God that Zephaniah highlights for us in the first part of the book. Uh, in terms of some of God's characteristics that we might not stomach as easily as some of the other ones. And then the next week we're going to look at the, the other attributes of God, which are the ones that shine forth very brightly in the gospel. So Paul says in Romans, he says, Behold the kindness and severity of the Lord. That there's almost this this juxtaposition of these two things that don't seem to fit together. And Zephaniah puts them together. The severity of the Lord in his justice and the kindness of the Lord in his undeserved grace. So this morning is behold the severity of the Lord. So Zephaniah chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Sobering text. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask that you'd grant us through the preaching and hearing of your word a greater sight of the depths of your character and a greater grasp of the magnitude and majesty of your glory. That in seeing that and grasping that, it would change us and shape us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the character of God is often treated like a slice of supreme pizza set before a very picky eater. I don't know if you have picky eaters in your home. We have them. I won't name them by name, but we have some. As that slice of pizza is set before them, you can see the shock on their face as they're overwhelmed by all these colors that they do not recognize on this piece of pizza. And once they locate the colors they do recognize, the toppings that they do joylessly enjoy, they begin desecrating the pizza by systematically removing all the items that they don't like. And in the end, what they are left with is a disheveled, triangular piece of toast with some marinara sauce and a dash of cheese on top of it. It is unrecognizable 
and significantly lacking in comparison to its original glory. Such is the way of our modern sensibilities when it comes to understanding and embracing all the fullness of God's glorious attributes. As God unfolds his character to us in the pages of scripture, there are some of the aspects of his character that they just don't quite appeal to our moral and intellectual taste buds. And so we start picking them off or we eat around them or even worse, we dip them in ranch so that we can stomach them more easily. And in the end, what we're left with when we do that is a domesticated deity, one who is safe, one who is comfortable, one who is inoffensive and approves of everything we do. St. Augustine said, if, if you believe what you like in the gospel, you could say the scriptures, and reject what you don't like, it is not the scriptures or the gospel you believe, but yourself. You have been put in the captain's chair. And then picking up on that same thread, C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said this, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter as long as they're contented and happy? What we want, in fact, not, is not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. Fathers give rules. Grandfathers just give fun, right? A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. But as the saying goes, ideas have consequences. And wrong ideas about God have the most significant consequences of all. What we think about when we think about God impacts in some way what we think about everything else and how we live in every single area of life. A shallow view of God will lead to a shallow life before God. Small thoughts about God will lead to small thoughts about sin, justice, righteousness. Diminished and deflated views of God will lead to inflated views of self and pride. And the reason I bring this up is because this was as rampant in Zephaniah's day as it is in our own. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3 that I read there in our scripture reading. This is the Lord speaking. He's, he's caused judgment to fall on sinful nations that surrounded Israel. He thought that they might see them and respond appropriately. Instead, it says this. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. What Zephaniah is saying is that there was a fear of the Lord supply chain issue in their day. The shelves were bare in the hearts of humans of a reverent sense of awe and admiration for God. It was nowhere to be found. But Zephaniah's prophetic ministry sought to change that as he holds up to us and highlights for us some of what you might call the uncomfortable attributes of God. The ones that don't immediately sit well with our moral and intellectual taste buds. And yet Zephaniah does this because he's seeking to recover and bring a reformation of a healthy and proper sense of the fear of the Lord. So what we're going to see this morning is this. Zephaniah highlights for us three particular attributes of God that are meant to grip our hearts so that we recover a proper sense of the fear of the Lord. He's holding up these three attributes of God so that we might experience a reformation in the fear of the Lord. Well, before we look at those attributes, we need to 
define our terms. We need to be clear on what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Because the Bible speaks about fear in, in two ways. One is appropriate for the believer, and the other is wholly inappropriate. The Bible speaks of an inappropriate fear, a fear of dread and guilt that makes you want to run away from God because you have a misconception that he is just some harsh, vindictive deity who just delights to punish those who are before him. This is the fear that gripped Adam and Eve when they sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid from God because they were afraid to face this God who had been so good to them. And it's the fear that grips drivers on 95 when they just pass a police officer and realize they've been speeding. It's a fear of dread and guilt that you are going to be, and you look in your rearview mirror for the next three minutes wondering, when, when are they coming? When are they coming? That's an unhealthy fear. That kind of fear drives out a love for God. It drives us away from God, and it is, is riddled with guilt and fueled by guilt. It is incompatible with the gospel. But there's a different kind of fear that is wholly appropriate. It is a fear of the Lord that is fueled by a reverential awe and admiration because you are overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's majesty as you begin to see what he is like. It's like the sense of awe that you would get if on the early morning dawn, as the sun is rising up, you go to the the north ridge of the Grand Canyon and you look over and behold the beauty of the sunrise, the magnitude of creation, and you feel very small for a moment. There's, There's a reverential sense of awe at something that is far outstrips you in magnitude and majesty. It's this type of fear that is meant to drive out flippancy and casualness and treating God as trivial and small. It's meant to replace it with a reverent respect and a holy admiration. And I think this is why the Bible, when it speaks of God, it often uses the imagery of fire in connection with God. So, for example, in Zephaniah 1.18, And Zephaniah 3.8, it speaks of in the fire of my jealousy. Why fire? Well, think about it. Kids especially, when you handle fire, if your parents ever let you near it or when they're not around, and you handle it casually and flippantly and carelessly, what happens often when that is taking place? Bad things often happen. And some of you, when you were kids, learned this the hard way by experience in the school of hard knocks, that when you handle fire flippantly and casually, Things don't go well. But when you approach fire with a a proper respect, you handle it carefully and cautiously, there is something wonderfully mesmerizing about a fire, something joy-filling and benefit-providing as you sit around the warmth of it and it gives off its light and you get to experience fellowship and company around it. That's the fear of the Lord that Zephaniah is seeking to recover, a proper approach to God, acknowledging who he is and handling him or going to him in reverent awe and admiration. And he does that by highlighting for us three attributes. The first of those is that God is uncompromisingly righteous. So Zephaniah wants to grow us in a fear of the Lord by showing us that God is uncompromisingly righteous. Look at Zephaniah 3, 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. So if I say, as sure as the sun is going to rise today and as sure as it's going to set, the Lord is righteous and he will do absolutely no injustice. God is free forever and always from the charge of injustice. 
And yet the opposite is true for the people of Israel at the time. Look at verse three and four of Zephaniah three. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Instead of giving and serving and helping, they're taking and devouring from the people. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. So they only only say the things that they want to say. They don't prophesy true things. They just prophesy nice things. And her, her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Instead of upholding the standards of the law, they're constantly the ones profaning it and undermining it in their character. So since they're devoid of a fear of God's righteousness, what happens is that they act unrighteously. Kind of, we'll call it trickle-down theology, as it were. What, what do we mean, though, by God is righteous or God is just? Well, here's what we mean. When we say that God is righteous, we mean that God will always uphold what is right. He will always act in accordance with what is right because he is the standard of what is right. God always upholds what is right. He always acts in accordance with what is right because he alone is the standard of what is right. Put it even more simply, God will never compromise his law and will not tolerate those who do. He will always act in accordance with it because it's a reflection of his character. And the fact that God's righteousness is inflexible and uncompromising is a good and glorious thing. Because imagine if God was like a judge who was susceptible to bribes, that all he had to do was was pay him the right sum of money and he would look the other way from injustice. Or imagine if God was like an unstable or fickle parent who woke up one day and didn't care what you did or woke up the next day and made rules faster than you could keep them. That would be frustrating. Sometimes my kids feel that way about me. Well, praise the Lord, as Abraham said, he is the judge of all the earth who will do what is right. God is uncompromising in his righteousness. And since we're made in the image of God, there is a reflection of this in our own moral sentiments. For example, if if you've ever had something stolen from you, we went to the beach one time, came back, van doors open, purse is gone, credit card alerts are on the phone, and immediately when that hits you, you sense that a wrong has been done. You've been personally violated. Your rights have been violated. And you immediately want someone to right that wrong. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we're made in the image of the God who is righteous. We want rightness to be upheld and restored when it's compromised. And we don't have a problem with this attribute as far as it relates to other people or as it relates to restoring our rights. But when it comes to us personally, we would love God to owe us his mercy and withhold from us his justice. We, we get things backward. R.C. Sproul, he tells this wonderful story of when he was a professor that, that makes this point very memorably. He was a, a young college professor. He was teaching uh, freshman Old Testament introduction to 250 college freshmen. First day of class, he gives out the assignments. He says there's going to be three term papers due. There'll be you know, six to eight pages, and they're due on, on these dates. If you turn them in late, you get an F. He made it very clear. You know, you got to be clear with freshmen, uh, college students. They don't know much. And so first paper is due on September 30th. 225 of the 250 students diligently come forward, hand in their term paper. And 25 of the students are standing there shivering before Dr. Spohl, shaking in fear. They said, oh, Dr. Spohl, we didn't get our papers done. We didn't budget our time. We didn't make the transition from high school to college. Please don't give us an F. Let us have a couple days extension. He says, okay, I'll let it go this time. I'll give you an extension, but don't let it happen again. Remember, next month, papers are due on time, not on time. 
You get an F. So then October 30th comes, second paper's due. 200 of the 250 students come forward with their term paper. 50 of them don't have the paper. And he says to them, where are your term papers? They said, oh, professor, everybody's term papers were due this week, and it was homecoming, and we were busy making floats and dancing and having fun. Please give us one more chance. And so he said, all right, I'll give you a two-day extension this time. And they spontaneously began singing, we love you, Professor Sproul. Yes, we do. You're the best teacher. It is true. (laughs) And he was the most popular professor until November 30th. 150 students come with their term papers. The other 100 walk in like they're strolling down the street for a loaf of bread. They were casual, relaxed. So Sproul says, Johnson. He says, yes, sir. I said, where's your term paper? He said, hey, prof, you know, don't worry about it. I'll have it in a couple of days. No problem. So Sproul takes out his black book. He says, Johnson, yes, F. Then he asks, Ewalt, where's your paper? Don't have it, F. And then someone had the audacity in the back of the class to say, hey, that's not fair. You don't say that to Sproul. (laughs) Sproul said, you you said that's not fair? Fairness is what you want? All right, Johnson, I don't recall that you had your second paper turned on time. So he goes back, he writes F there. And he says, Ewald, you didn't have your paper turned in last time either. F. Goes all the way back, gives everyone an F. And he says, would anybody else like justice and fairness? When you understand the righteousness and justice of God, when you understand it properly, the first thing you're gripped by is the fact that you are not owed an ounce of God's mercy or grace. And you know You are growing in a proper sense of the fear of the Lord and an understanding of his righteousness when this becomes the theological problem you wrestle with. Listen to this. How can God forgive a sinner like me and not compromise his righteousness and justice? We always ask the question the opposite way. Why can't God give me his grace and mercy? But when you properly grow in the fear of the Lord, you start to ask it a different way. How can God forgive me for what I've done and still remain righteous and just? And the only answer to that question is by providing a substitute who would stand in our place. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that in the incarnation, God sent forth his son to uphold his righteousness so that he could give us his grace. Because Christ lived the perfectly righteous life that no one could live. He lived up to every iota of God's standards in his life that we could never have met. And then in his death in our place, he endured the righteous penalty that all of our unrighteousness deserved. A penalty we could have never paid. And thus what Christ does is he both cancels the debt of our unrighteousness that we owe to God and fills our account with righteousness that he himself earned from his own merits that we never could have provided so that we can stand before a righteous God who has not compromised his righteousness and yet welcomes us in to his holy presence. Only for the righteousness of Christ can God remain righteous and declare us to be righteous who are not in his sight. Well, second, Zephaniah helps us grow in the fear of the Lord by showing us that God is appropriately angry. Now, I I didn't coordinate anything with Wes, and and we're not trying to be a hellfire and brimstone church. That's not necessarily the reputation we want. We want to be a Bible-based church. And so when we're preaching through through Zephaniah, I can't help but notice 
the attributes of God that he highlights, and we have to stand underneath them. To do theology by warm, fuzzy feelings is a very bad way to do theology. Emotions make great servants but terrible masters, especially when it comes to understanding the Bible. So God is appropriately angry. What do we, what do we mean by that? Because angry is, is one of those words that it seems so unfitting for God. It's like putting pineapple on pizza. It just doesn't, doesn't belong there, right? But Zephaniah corrects us of this misguided thinking. The anger of the Lord is referred to four times in the book of Zephaniah. If you look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it's in there three times. The day of the anger of the Lord. The day of the anger of the Lord. And Zephaniah 3, 8 says, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. And then two other times in Zephaniah, it's referred to the wrath of the Lord. So if you, if you put those all together, this is the attribute more than any other attribute that Zephaniah holds up to us and says, behold your God, who is appropriately angry. Why is this the attribute that Zephaniah highlights more than any other? Well, I would venture to say it's because that this is the attribute of God that is most overlooked, most undermined, and yet most provoked by our actions. Look at Zephaniah 3.1. This is the city of Jerusalem that's to be the city on a hill shining like someone who's different, walking after the ways of the Lord. And it says this, Woe to her who is rebellious, defiled, the oppressing city. So instead of being the shining city of holiness that was different, following after the Lord, they had become a shining city a profaneness of oppression. This is, this is sin city, as it were. And in their arrogance, and this is the height of their arrogance, look at Zephaniah 1.12. In their arrogance, they think despite their actions, God is not going to do a thing about it. Look at Zephaniah 1.12, the, the last phrase there in that verse. They, these people say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Meaning, He's not going to do a thing about what we're doing. He's, he's not going to bless us, but he's not going to punish us either. Who cares? We do what we want because we want to. That was their attitude. And I'm stealing this imagery and illustration from our elder Mike Bruce. He's used this illustration of God's patience and his mercy and grace. God's patience and mercy and grace is a hair trigger, and his wrath and justice is on safety lock. God is slowing. He's quick on the draw with his patience, his kindness, his goodness toward us, and he is very slow on the draw with his justice and his wrath. But here's how God's people abused and misinterpreted that. And we do the same thing. They interpreted the patience of God in delaying his anger as an endorsement of their sin slash a compromise and adjustment in his character. They saw him punishing the other nations in their sin and he hasn't done anything to us. You know what? Nothing's going to happen to us. We can keep doing what we do because God must approve of it. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In his kindness and in his severity. He never compromises, never changes. He is slow to anger, but not like a parent who's counting down a disobedient child from 10. I'm going to count to zero. By the time I get to zero, you better stop. Most of the time I've, I've done that or other parents have done that. They don't actually intend to get to zero. They're just bluffing and hope that you don't figure it out by the time you get to zero. God is slow to anger, but he does not bluff. He does not bluff at all. And as hard as it may be for our modern sensibilities, the appropriate anger of God is a good and glorious thing. So what does the Bible mean by the anger or wrath of God? It is this. 
that God has a holy hostility towards sin and evil and those who commit it, and he will punish it appropriately. God has a holy hostility towards sin and evil and those who commit it, and he will punish it and them appropriately. God's anger is not tainted by any of the imperfections that so easily contaminate ours. That's where we struggle with attaching these words to God because we see it so wrongly expressed in us. His anger is never arbitrary, never impulsive, never erratic. His anger is not determined by how much sleep he got last night, if he's had his morning cup of coffee or when the last time he ate was, as ours is so often. It's always controlled, always measured, always appropriate, always aimed at the right things. And you may still be struggling with this aspect of God's character. How can this be good and glorious? Well, imagine the alternative. Imagine a God who was completely morally indifferent, who cared not a lick for what people did, sin, evil, oppression, and justice, didn't, didn't give a rip about it. Imagine a God who didn't care enough about evil to ever give you the hope that one day all evil and sin and injustice will be removed from this earth. Imagine if God just yawned at murder and covered his eyes when it came to oppression and violence. That God would neither be good nor glorious. We innately know that moral indifference is a virtue, or is a vice, not a virtue. Therefore, it is good and glorious that God has a holy hostility towards sin and evil and will deal with it appropriately. And so when the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans about God's wrath and a knowledge of it, which he lays out, he says it should do two things to us. It should fill us with gratitude and it should free us from holding grudges. What he meant by that is it should fill us with gratitude because it gives us a constant awareness of, as Wes mentioned in Sunday school, of what we have been saved from. You were not a blank slate before God. There was not just zero dollars in your account and you, you just needed Jesus to give you a couple bucks. There was debts, mountains of them. And yet God forgave them in his son. The unbeliever has nothing to look forward to but the anger and wrath and justice of God. But the undeserving believer, by God's grace, has nothing to look forward to but the mercy and kindness and love of God. And so that should fill us with gratitude. But it also should free us from holding grudges for two reasons. As Mark mentioned in the call to confession, because we realize how much we've been forgiven. Therefore, we need not hold on to these, this bitterness and this anger towards others because we can release and say, you know what? God has forgiven me far more personally than I will have to forgive another person ever. It will never compute. It will never match up. Our debt to God, which has been forgiven, will always outweigh the wrongs and offenses that someone has done toward us. And also, because this is where some, sometimes you struggle, and I know some of your stories where they're, they're in your past there is great wrongs that have been done to you, and, and they affect you to this day, and, and you hold on to grudges, and, and you struggle with, how do I understand the justice of God? No one, ultimately, when it comes to eternity, will get away with any injustice. All wrongs will be righted in eternity. And Paul applies this. When, when you feel like they got away with it, like how, how can they get away with that? Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Vengeance may, may feel good for a moment. It, may, it makes for a good movie, a good superhero, but it doesn't work. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Ultimate justice will be done in light of eternity. So we can rest in that fear 
of the Lord. Well, third and finally, Zephaniah helps us grow in the fear of the Lord by showing us that God is intensely jealous. Now, if you thought anger was an inappropriate word to apply to God, jealousy might even be higher ranked. As well, This doesn't seem to fit the Lord. The word jealous doesn't bring up positive images of good characteristics. For example, let's say uh, the young ladies and gentlemen of our church were at the, the youth group hanging out with Mark and Missy, and they gave them an assignment to write out the qualities and characteristics that they should look for in a future spouse. And let's say one of them wrote this. A quality that I should look for in my future spouse is someone who is incredibly insecure, extremely overbearing, and checks up on me as frequently as the government. Okay? That would raise some serious red flags and, and probably some questions made phone call to the parents. Because for those who have seen or experienced it, jealousy in human relationships, simply expressed, is a lethal relational quality. It is terrible. So why then does the Lord describe himself as jealous? Two times, Zephaniah 1.18 and Zephaniah 3, in the fire of my jealousy. And that's not even the clearest example of it. Exodus 34.14. This is after the golden calf episode. Israel's come out of Egypt. Moses is up on the mountain too long, so let's make a golden calf. And the Lord is burning with anger then. And he says this, no, you shall have no other gods before me, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So we might not like this word, but the Lord's not afraid to use it. So why is that? Well, as with the attribute of anger, we have to distinguish between a sinful expression of it in humans and divine jealousy that is good and glorious in God. Sinful human jealousy is sinful because it flows out of deep insecurity, unwarranted suspicion, and a desire to selfishly control another person. Those are all sinful wrong things. It's the opposite of love. It doesn't give itself away. It tries to take. But the jealousy of God is not polluted by any imperfections. God is never driven by any insecurity or human neediness. Because why? He is in need of nothing. He is eternally self-sufficient, eternally content, eternally happy in himself. Anything God gives comes with no strings attached. Because he's not like that person who's like, I'm going to do you a favor, and I hope that you'll ask me uh, what I can do for you kind of thing. There's no strings attached because he's in need of nothing. God will never sing these lyrics, which I frequently sang from the Backstreet Boys in high school during breakups. Without you, all I'm going to be is incomplete. God will never say that. That is not what drives the jealousy of God. But even in humans, there is a good and righteous kind of jealousy that I think you're familiar with, that cares about proper priorities, cares about faithfulness, and cares about loyalty. Children are jealous for their parents' attention over work and technology. When I'm there on my phone, my kids are pulling at my leg. They want my attention because they know I'm, I'm mixing my priorities. A husband is jealous for his wife's faithfulness. A country is jealous for the loyalty of their soldiers. Those are faint reflections of the perfect jealousy of God who desires our faithfulness and devotion. Why does he do it? Because we were made for God And our hearts will be discontent and dissatisfied until we find our delight in God, who alone is worthy of our devotion. That's what drives the jealousy of God, knowing that we are made for God and we will not be satisfied until we find our delight in being devoted to him. God's not trying to keep us from something that would otherwise satisfy us. He's actually keeping us from things that would otherwise harm us and spoil our joy. We were made for him. And our hearts will not be content 
and satisfied until they find their delight in God, who alone is worthy of our devotion. So you could say that God is jealous to see us devoted to what is eternally delightful. God is jealous to see us devoted to what is eternally delightful, namely himself. Sinful human jealousy is the opposite of love because it takes and it draws towards something that cannot ultimately satisfy. Divine jealousy is love properly expressed as God pursues us, not because he needs us, but because we were made for him and will not find any greater joy than in him. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The jealous love of God is always a freely giving, generously outpouring love, never a selfishly taking, sinfully manipulating love. That's what distinguishes it from human jealousy and makes it good and glorious. And in no act is the jealous love of God more perfectly and brightly displayed than in his sending of his son to pursue our good in his glory. Listen to how Augustine so beautifully captures the gift we celebrate at Christmas. That God, out of his jealous love for us, sends his son. He says this, The word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and born in time for us. The maker of man became man, that he, the sustainer of all life, might be sustained by the nourishment of his mother, that he, the bread of life, might taste hunger, that he, the fountain of life, might thirst, that he, the way, might grow weary by his journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, true justice, might be condemned unjustly, that he, the healer of our infirmities, might be suspended upon a cross, and that he, the life, might die. This is the jealous love of God made flesh, pursuing us, going after us. Augustine goes on, he said this, he did this although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had not done one evil himself. And although we, who were the recipients of so much grace at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits. This is the God who is both jealous to uphold the glory of his righteousness and his appropriate anger and jealous to spare us of those things by gifting us his son in our place. That is the God who is meant to grip our hearts and grow us in a reverential awe of his majesty and the magnitude of his glorious character. Let's pray.